Welcome to Awaken to Grace. Today we're in Mark chapter 14. I'm Chad Roberts. I'm your Bible teacher today as we walk through this great chapter. You know, we are in the last week of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. It's what we call Passion Week, and we're nearing the end. And in today's sermon, in today's text, we're going to see Jesus at Bethany, and we are going to see how Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, anoints his body, getting him ready for burial. And we're going to see that this makes Judas Iscariot and others irate, and this is what's going to push Judas over the edge to choose to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, friends, often we think of the suffering of Jesus on the cross, but no, you walk through the gospel accounts, and particularly chapter 14 as we are today, many more sufferings that Jesus endured. We're going to see Judas betray him. We're going to see his disciples forsake him. We're going to see Peter deny him. Well, I hope that today you learn much out of the Word of God as we go to Mark chapter 14 on today's edition of Awakened to Grace. Mark 14, there are a number of verses here, quite a challenge for a blind pastor, 72 verses. So I have ordered in boxed lunches that will be here at 1 o'clock. We'll be around verse 50 by then. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. I have got a lot of scripture to cover. And uh, Vincent was making me laugh this week. He talked about a church he was part of when he was in Florida. And he said their motto was, keep the pastor honest. (laughs) Follow the scriptures. Keep him honest. And I hope you'll do that today. Follow along with me along these 72 verses. I'm going to break them in large chunks, and I'll give a little bit of commentary, a little bit of application through these sections. Uh, We're not going to tackle it verse by verse as we typically do. We'll tackle it in more sections because there are so many in this chapter 72. So if you will, look with me at verse number 1 and 2, and let's understand the context of what's really going on. Now, if you'll remember weeks ago at the first of the year when we were in Mark 3 and the Pharisees challenged Jesus with the man with the withered hand. When when Christ did that miracle where they told the man to stretch out his hand and his hand became whole just like the other. It was then and there that the Pharisees began to plot. We're going to kill him. Then it was later in chapter 11 when Jesus utterly cleansed the temple that again the Pharisees said, we're going to kill him. And now we come to chapter 14. And the Bible says that they are plotting. How can they take him by stealth? How can they capture him and deliver him for death? How are they going to do it? And verse 2 tells us something that is key to understanding this last of the Passion Week of Christ. The Pharisees do not want to do it right now. And why? Because it is the holiday. It is the holy day. It is Passover and the feast. Now, the 
religious leaders feared one thing above everything, and that was the iron fist of the Roman authorities. And Rome wanted only one thing in Jerusalem, and that was peace. Now remember what's happening with Passover. An average population of 100,000. But with the week of Passover, Josephus, the historian at this time, records for us that Passover, Jerusalem would swell to over one million people. And here are all of these Jews coming not only from all of Israel, but from all over the world. With great nationalistic pride in their hearts. And how easy it would be for a riot for a resurrection, for, for an insurrection to take place. And the religious authorities could not allow that to happen. Rome would come down on them faster than they could blink. Jesus was not only a religious problem for them, he was a big political problem for them. So as they plot and as they plan, they say to themselves, it cannot be done during Passover. But let me tell you who's really in charge of things. The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And what we see is while they are saying, no, not during Passover, what we see in Isaiah, God says, I declared the end from the beginning. God doesn't just look forward. He goes forward and looks backward. He knows the end all the way from the beginning and the beginning to the end. And do you know what the Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28? You should write Acts 4, 27, 28, right there beside verses 1 and 2. Because you know what the Bible says? It, it was God's predestined plan. It was not King Herod. It was not the Jews. It was not Pontius Pilate. It was not the Roman government. It wasn't the Jewish authorities. It was God and God alone. And let me tell you who's calling the shots in your life today. Let me tell you who's calling the shots in my life today. It is the sovereignty of God. Amen. The sovereignty of God. And so verses 1 and 2, we understand the context. It's not going to be on their calendar. It's going to be according to the scriptures. It's going to be according to God's predestined plan, Acts 4, 27 and 28. Now when we come to verse 3, verses 3 through 9, we're going to see first that Jesus is adored. If you're going to take notes, I want to show you four things today in this chapter. Number one, Jesus adored. Number two, Jesus betrayed. We're going to see Judas in a moment. Verses 3 through 9 is going to push him over the edge. And he's going to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to go to the upper room in Passover. And we're going to see the first communion. And we're going to see Jesus go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to see him arrested. And then lastly, we're going to see Peter's great denial. And we're going to see Jesus denied. Jesus adored. Jesus betrayed, Jesus arrested, and Jesus denied. In verses 3 through 9, we know who this woman is because of John 12. This is Mary. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. 
Anybody remember who Martha was, her sister? Martha was large and in charge. Martha was the cook. Martha was the type A personality. Martha, Martha was, she was in charge of everything. Do you know how in charge that Martha was? The text tells, me, tells us that they're in Bethany and they're at a man's house named Simon the leper. Now who is Simon the leper? Must have been a man that Jesus cleansed and healed. John 12 tells us that Martha is at Simon the leper's house and she is cooking. Friends, it's not even her house. And she's still taking charge. Martha's the type, she would come to your house and say, you should clean, well, here, I'll get it, and she'll clean it. She would have started going through your fridge and start going through your pantries, and she just, she just, she's just in charge. That's all you can say. And Lazarus is there. John 12 says that a multitude came to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus. And the Bible says in John 12 that they plotted to kill Lazarus as well. You know what I bet Lazarus said when they said, they're plotting to kill you? I bet he went, so? Been there, done that, kept my t-shirt. Let me tell you something on a serious note. I've been reading almost every day. I've been listening to the post-resurrection stories of all four Gospels. And I heard something this week that I've never heard quite like that. It says one incident when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. It says that they fell at his feet and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. And when I read that, it's like the Holy Spirit said, Chad, do you know why every single disciple wasn't afraid to die? Do you know why Peter could sleep on the night of his execution in Acts chapter 12 and be in such a sound sleep that the angel of the Lord had to poke him to wake him up? I couldn't sleep the night of my execution, but do you know why Peter could? Because they saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You think they were afraid of death? They had no fear of death. Because they touched, they ate breakfast with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. So Lazarus, they're plotting to kill him. They're trying to kill Jesus. And the Bible says that Mary, in John 12, in Mark 14, Mary takes some ointment, pure nard, the Bible says, very costly, and she breaks the jar and she anoints the body of Jesus. Now, don't get this confused with another woman who did the same act, but a different story. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. When she breaks this ointment, it fills the house with the, fra with the fragrance. This was very costly. Scripture says that it was worth 300 denarii. We know how much that was. Because according to history, a denarii was a one day's wage. One day's wage. So 300 denarii would have been equivalent to basically one year's salary. 
Think about what you make in a year. Could you sacrifice that on one occasion for Jesus? She did. And you know what Jesus called it? A beautiful act of worship. And he said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, this will be spoken of as a memory to her. And here we are over 2,000 years later in our little corner of northeast Tennessee. And here we're fulfilling the very words of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, Judas is angry. The other, there are some in the house that Scripture says they're indignant because they say, well, what a waste. You could have taken that ointment. You could have sold it and given the money to the poor. But oh, what? No, that wasn't their real motive. The other gospels tell us that Judas Iscariot was a thief and that he was the treasurer and he helped himself to the money. That's what the Bible says. You know, it's the same today. When people surrender their lives to the Lord, when people give up things, when people fast and they consecrate themselves and they yield themselves to the Lord, you know what the world does? The world looks at that and says, what a waste. What a waste. No, my friend. Whatever is consecrated to the Lord is holy and it is not a waste. So, verses 10 and 11. This pushes Judas over the edge. Jesus is going one direction. Judas decides he's going to go another direction. So he approaches the chief priest and the authorities. And he's willing to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice verse 11. It made them glad. He sought for an opportunity, but not during Passover. That's very key. You must understand that. They did everything they could to avoid the holiday. Okay. Now verse 12. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, where shall we prepare the Passover? And Jesus tells them something very interesting. Jesus gives them a word of knowledge here. A word of wisdom. He goes, go into the city. You'll find a man carrying a pitcher of water, which was highly unusual. Because typically the wives did that, not men. And he said, you'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow that man and tell him the master has need of the upper room for Passover with his disciples. They did as Jesus said. They found the man. They told him what he said. And the man said, of course, absolutely. Do you know who scholars believe this man was? This is very interesting. There's going to be some history on John Mark in this chapter John Mark is who wrote the gospel of Mark. And we believe this is his family. We believe this was actually his family's home. We think that John Mark would have been approximately 10, maybe 12 years old when Jesus did Passover at his house. We believe this man carrying the pitcher of water would have been his father. And see, the house of John Mark essentially became the safe house In Jerusalem for Christians. Do you remember when Peter was arrested in Acts 12 and the angel broke him out of prison? The iron gate opened of its own accord. He's standing in the street. Then he realizes it's not a dream. I'm really rescued. Where does he go? He goes to the all-night prayer meeting. And where was it? John Mark's mother's house. And we believe this was the same place that Jesus did Passover in. 
So they prepare the Passover and they get ready to partake of it. Now, this is why I want you to understand the text so clearly. Judas knows what he is planning, but no one else knows. But Jesus is going to expose it. And they begin the Passover meal, and Jesus says, One of you is going to betray me. I bet the heart of Judas almost came out of his chest. Because no one knew it. And do you know what Jesus just did? Jesus just put him on his toes. Jesus just exposed his plot. Now let me teach you something interesting about Passover if you don't know this. Of course, Passover comes from the book of Exodus. When the death angel passed over the people of God in the land of Egypt. They were to take hyssop and apply the blood of the lambs to the doorpost. And what happened when the blood of the lamb was applied? The death angel passed over. What did we sing this morning? Glory to your name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to your name. Amen. What happens when the blood is applied to our lives? Friends, when that second death comes, oh, we'll die the death of Adam, but you and I will never die that second death. When the Bible says that the second death will not harm us in Revelation 2, the word for harm means recognize. The second death will not even recognize those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Passover. In Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, there are four I will statements by God Almighty. God says, I will bring you out of bondage. He says, I will deliver you out of the hand of the Egyptians. He says, I will ransom you. I'll redeem you. I will bless you. And then he says the most interesting thing. He says, and I will take you to me. And I will be your God. And you will be my people. Oh. So the Jews would drink four cups at Passover. Cup one was the cup of bringing out. Cup two was the cup of deliverance. Cup three was the cup of redemption, or as the scriptures call it, the cup of blessing. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. And the fourth cup, how interesting, is called the cup of taking out. What do you suppose that is? Well, let's dig. When Jesus did Passover in this text, I want you to pay especially close attention to verse number 25. In verses 22, he institutes the first communion. This is why we do communion. We are to proclaim his death until he comes. Jesus takes the bread, verse 22, breaks it. This is my body broken for you. He takes the cup. This is my blood, which is shed for you. But pay attention to verse 25. Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day that the kingdom comes. 
Oh, my friends, do you know what he is saying? Now say amen if you're with me right now. Let's learn something right now. He drank the three cups with them. The cup of bringing out, the cup of deliverance, and the cup of blessing, the cup of redemption. But Christ stopped short at the third cup. He did not partake of the fourth cup. Do you know why he didn't partake of the fourth cup? Because, friends, we are waiting for that great and glorious day that the kingdom of God is all together. Do you know what that day is called? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is found in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. And do you know what will one day take place? When all of God's people, everyone that's been redeemed out of every nation and every tribe and every language and every culture of every age of humanity, and we are all together, do you know what will happen? Christ will take that fourth cup and we'll be at the table with him. Amen. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb when the church is married to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His bride. So, what are, so, so what's going on now? We're in this parenthesis. It's the time of the Gentiles, the Bible calls it. Mark 13, Romans 11, Daniel 9. It's the time of the Gentiles. And what is happening? God is redeeming a church. And it began on the day of Pentecost with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And it will conclude. It will end with the harpazo, the rapture of the church. And we are in this time period that I believe we're in the last of 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 the last days. And he is near and he's at the gate. Amen. So what do we partake of? As Christ did, we drink of that third cup. We drink of that redemption. We drink of that blessing. Go with me real quick. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Paul teaches about communion in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And it's why we observe it as a church. As a matter of fact, our Good Friday service is this Friday. Don't miss it because we're going to observe communion together. I don't know about you, but it's going to be much special to me after understanding this. Look what Paul says. See, this is the age in which we live. We're in the age of grace. We're in the new covenant. We're in the church age. We're in the times of the Gentiles. God is building a bride, building his body, and we are part of it. And look what Paul says. When you partake of the bread and when you partake of the cup, what does he call it? The cup of what? Blessing. Why is it the cup of blessing? It goes back to the roots of Exodus chapter 6. It's the third I will statement of God to his people. So when you and I drink of the cup of blessing, or you could say the cup of redemption, do you know what we are doing? Look what it says. We are participating in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is part of the gospel. So when you thread the scriptures together, what began in Exodus chapter 6 was 
fulfilled at Passover in Mark 14. You and I fulfill it every time we do communion in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And that fourth cup will one day be fulfilled in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's the word of God in its completion. Amen. And you and I are part of the story. You and I participate in proclaiming God's death to the world. So here they are at Passover. Judas, the other gospels tell us before Christ administers communion, Judas leaves. Jesus tells him, do what you must do and go do it quickly. I bet Judas was in a sheer panic. Verse 26 says that they sang a hymn and they departed. Why did they sing a hymn? This was tradition. They sang what's called the Hallel hymns of the Psalms, the Hallelujah hymns. That's what they sang at Passover. So they sang the scriptures. Now the Lord is going to tell them we're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Why are they in the Garden of Gethsemane for so long? Because remember, friends, no one was ready for this. Judas was not ready. The high priest was not ready. The the Sanhedrin was not. No one was ready. And you know what the high priest and the Sanhedrin is now going to have to do? They're going to have to go knock on Pontius Pilate's door during the holiday. How many of you want your work to call you on Christmas Eve? How many of you want your work to call you on Thanksgiving Day? No, it's the holidays. You're off. Leave me alone, right? And no, they're going to have to go to Pontius Pilate. They're going to have to seek permission. So it's going to take time for all this red tape to happen. They're they're going to have to cut through all this red tape. And no one was prepared for this. But what's happening? The scriptures are going to be fulfilled. So Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Did you know that Gethsemane means... The oil press. And you think the wilderness experience where Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted by the devil, you think that was hard? No. He is in the oil press. Dr. Luke records in his gospel, he tells us that Christ is so overwhelmed, he literally sweats great drops of blood, which is a medical explanation for that, and he did. The weight of the world is on the shoulders of Jesus. And I want to show you in verse 36. I want to show you the way that Jesus prays. Now, if you've been sensitive through our study of the Gospel of Mark, you keep hearing a phrase pop up, and the phrase says, With God, nothing is impossible. I love that. You know, I've been asking the Lord as we're working our way toward this great healing Sunday. I've been asking the Lord for myself. I want to live in a realm where nothing is impossible with God. I don't want to live in the impossibilities of man. I want to live in the possibilities of God Almighty, who is the creator and the redeemer. That's the realm that I want to live in. Not in the impossibilities of man. So, I want you to note verse 36. Jesus tells the Father, if it's possible, 
Let this cup pass from me. Let this hour pass. He tells him, Abba, Father, with you, nothing is impossible. This cup can pass. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God can change everything. God has the ability to. But he says something even more intriguing. Notice what he says. He says, Abba, Father, with you nothing is impossible. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, friends, that's where faith really kicks in. You know, as I walk my journey of faith and God is growing my faith and he's building my faith. You know, I want my faith to be so strong and so sturdy that no demon in hell can shake it. I want my faith to be strengthened to the point that no circumstance I face can shake my God-given faith. But let me tell you where I don't want my faith. I don't want my faith where I'm in the position to tell God what to do. Even Jesus didn't tell the Father what to do. Jesus teaches us great submission. And Jesus says, God, with you, nothing is impossible. But nevertheless, not what I want, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, that's true faith. That's true faith. Can you do that in your circumstance? Can you say, God, I have the faith that you can do anything. But nevertheless, your will, not mine. Friends, that's faith at its greatest level, I believe. And so the Lord helps him and strengthens him. And now the time has come. The hour has come. And Jesus tells his disciples, it's over. It's done. My betrayer is at hand. And immediately, there's our word again, ethos. 45 times in Mark. And immediately, he sees Judas Iscariot. Now, let's watch his arrest. Verses 42 to 52. Judas is going to come into the garden with all of the authorities, some swords, some clubs. And he's going to identify Jesus in the most unusual way. He's going to walk up to the Savior and he's going to kiss him on the cheek. What a strange thing. What a disloyal thing. What a wicked thing. And you know what? I heard a Bible teacher say years and years ago, and I've never forgotten it. Judas Iscariot kissed the very door of heaven, and he died and went to hell. Are some of you that close to the Lord today? That you're familiar with the things of God? You're familiar with the Lord. You're familiar with right and wrong and God's holiness. But like Judas Iscariot, you may be near it. You may be familiar with it. You may be close enough to kiss it. But you're going to die and go to hell. God forbid. God forbid. So they go to arrest him. And do you remember what Peter says when Jesus tells them, After Passover, you're all going to scatter. And they go, no, Lord, no, 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 we won't. 
And Peter said, they all may scatter, but I won't. And Jesus said, yes, you will. As a matter of fact, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And Peter said, no. Peter said, Lord, I would die for you. Let me tell you, Peter was very sincere. And you know what? Peter proved here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter proved that he would die for Jesus. Do you remember what Peter does? He takes his sword. A fisherman shouldn't have a sword because he was a terrible aim. And he cuts the soldier's ear off. You remember that? What, what was he aiming for? And listen, had Jesus not stepped in and healed the man's ear, they would have killed Peter. Peter was very courageous. And Peter proved that he was willing to die for the Lord. But see, the scriptures must be fulfilled. They take Jesus, all the disciples scatter. Now pay close attention to verse 52 and 53. So verses, oh, where is it? I think 43 to 50, they arrest Jesus. But look at verse 52 and 53. Now this is highly interesting. <coughs> the Gospel of Mark records that there was a certain man, a certain young man, who was in linen clothes that the soldiers captured and he got away from them and he ran home naked. Now, who do you suppose this is? Let me ask you a question. Why is this incident of a young man only recorded in the book of Mark? Because no one would remember this unless it was you that had to run home but naked. I believe this was John Mark. What are these linen clothes? These are his pajamas. You know what I think happened? I think this young boy, who I think was about 10 or 12 years old, I think they did Passover at his parents' house. And I think he spied on them the whole time. I think he was stealth. I think he stayed in the background and in the shadows. And when Jesus cut Passover short, and they didn't take that fourth cup, and he said, Judas is gone. He went to betray him. And now they're going to go to the garden. I think that John Mark in his linen pajamas, I think he followed Jesus and the disciples to the garden of Gethsemane. And I think he was there for it all. And when that Roman soldier grabbed him, somehow he, <coughs> he wiggled out of those linen pajamas and he ran home naked. What a story. And I think that was probably the 12-year-old John Mark. <coughs> now they bring Jesus, verse 53. Verse 53 to 65, they're going to bring Jesus before the council. They're going to bring him before the chief priest. They're going to bring him before the Sanhedrin, which was the highest court of law in the Jewish world. And they're going to trump up all these charges. It is Jewish law that you had to have two witnesses. And they couldn't even get two witnesses because they couldn't get their lies to match up. The chief priest asked the Lord, Are these charges true? What do you have to say in your defense? And Jesus administers to him the greatest insult. He just stares at him and he doesn't answer him a word. 
irate and filled with fury, the chief priest finally says, Are you or are you not the Messiah? And Christ says, I am he. And you will one day see me seated in great glory and power. And you will see me come back with the clouds of heaven. Scripture says the chief priest ripped his clothes and said, what further proof is needed? What do you find as judgment? And the Sanhedrin said, murder him, kill him. And the very thing they did not want to do at Passover, they are doing because God is sovereign and the plans of the Lord will prevail. They begin to mock Jesus. They begin to spit upon him. Can you imagine the creator being spat upon? They begin to beat him mercilessly. All the while, I want you to pay close attention to verse 54. Perhaps it's 56. I think it's 54. Keep me honest now. Check me. It says that Peter followed him at a distance. Is it 54 or 56? Oh, good. Oh, you are following. Oh, good. 54. Go to the book of second matter of fact. No, I'm kidding. There is no book of second matter of fact. Some people are turning. Where is that? <laughs> you know, keep me honest. 54. It says that Peter followed him at a distance. Now, I, I want to finish our time today talking about Peter's narrative. Okay? If you'll give me just a little bit of time here, to, a few more moments here to talk about Peter. Because something happened to Peter. So Peter's following at a distance. There's some of you that that could be said of you today. You're here today because you sense God drawing you, but you're only at a distance. You're not fully committed yet. There's some listening online that you're following Jesus only at a distance. Well, in these days, when you appeared before the Sanhedrin, it was customary they would remove everyone that worked in the temple court, everyone that worked for the Sanhedrin, and everyone except for the authorities were in the room. So what happened is everyone who worked there went down into the courtyard. In Israel, in the spring, it's very cool at night and very pleasant in the day. Well, this is in the middle of the night. So what do they do? They build a fire, and people are warming themselves. And see, everyone knows everyone. You know most of the people you work with probably. And everyone's chatting and talking. Well, what happens is because Peter has followed at a distance, he gets locked inside the courtyard. He can't get out. Peter's trapped. And see, the problem is everyone knows everyone. But people don't recognize Peter. And there's this one young servant girl who keeps looking over at him, saying, why do I not know him? Wait, he is familiar. And she says to him, are you not one of his followers? 
And listen, I want you to understand, Peter didn't lose faith. Peter lost courage in this moment. You have to understand how close he is to the Sanhedrin. He is in their courtyard. And Peter goes, I don't know what you're speaking of. I don't know this man. There's one. <coughs> Peter moves. He's trying to be in the shadows. He's trying to hide. I picture Peter going by the gate and pressing it, trying to get out. But he can't. He's trapped. More time passes. And they say, no, you, you are him. You are one of his followers. And Peter goes, no, I don't know even what you're talking about. It's two. And then one of the other gospels tells us, I think maybe John tells us, one hour passed. And then they come to him and they say, no, you are one of his. You have a Galilean accent. We recognize your accent. And then, do you know what Peter does? That sailor that fisherman starts cussing like a sailor. And the scriptures omit what he says. But I guarantee it wasn't PG. <coughs> and he begins cursing, saying, I do not know him. And at that moment, everything converges. They bring Christ out. He's bloodied. He's beaten. His eyes lock with Peter. And Peter hears the rooster crow. And he denied him. We often think of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. But no, look at all that he suffered just in this one night. Judas betraying him. The disciples forsaking him. The authorities arresting him. And now Peter denying him. What's interesting about Peter... When Jesus dies and Jesus is raised from the dead, there's no words recorded by Peter. He runs to the tomb with John. John outruns him. Jesus appears to them in a locked room. Peter says nothing. The Bible tells us that he broke down and that he wept bitterly. Friends, I think Peter died inside that night. I think he died. I think when Peter was, even after the resurrection, I think even after the tomb, I think he was a shell of a man. He blew it. He went too far. But do you remember what the angel said when he appeared to the ladies? Go tell his disciples. And who? And Peter. Do you remember after Jesus raised from the dead and he was on the shore of Galilee and Peter and some of the disciples were in the boat and John said, it's the Lord. And do you remember what Peter did? He jumped out of the boat into the sea to get to Jesus. Jesus made them breakfast. Hot coals, fish, bread. And Jesus said, come, have breakfast with me. Oh, Jesus is my kind of breakfast eater. And Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more 
Peter said, of course I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. <coughs> Jesus asked him a second time, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord. He said, then tend my sheep. And then the third time, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, what were these? Could have been the fish, but I don't think so. I think he meant the other disciples. And it grieved Peter, the Bible says. It grieved him. Why did Jesus ask him the same question three times? Do you know why, friends? Because he denied him three times. And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. And he said, then feed my sheep. And you know what Jesus did that day on the shore? He shored him up. He restored him. He restored his fellowship. He restored his faith. He restored his courage. And see, here's the point. The same man that denied him three times was the same man that was going to preach filled with the Holy Spirit. And in one day, 3,000 give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Satan will try to always get you to go back to your past, but Jesus is always looking ahead at your future. And some of you feel like you've blown it too big. You feel like you've went too far today. You feel like you've lost your faith and you feel like Jesus is so disappointed in your life. But no, let me tell you, my friends, God is a God of restoration. He'll restore you today, just like he did Peter. There are many different ways you can connect to Awaken to Grace in a more personal way. First, visit our website, awakentograce.com. Second, you can subscribe to our podcast, Awakened to Grace with Chad Roberts. Third, you can download our free mobile app. Simply search Awakened to Grace wherever you get your favorite apps. And lastly, send me an email directly. It's simply Pastor Chad Roberts at gmail.com.